Matthew chapter 27. Let's take a moment to pray and ask the Lord to help us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for letting us come to your word now. As we read it, Lord, please open our eyes that we might see wondrous things from your law. God, we're your people. We're your people who love your word. Thank you so much for it, Lord. Lord, we want to worship Christ right now. We want to worship our Savior as we read these glorious truths. So please, God, we're asking you, help us. God, we don't want to be dull and dead and cold to glorious truth, Lord, and a glorious gospel. So please, God, protect us from that. Help us to lean in right now, Lord, and worship you through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I, wanna, I want us to walk through the story of the resurrection from Matthew 27, verse 45, through chapter 28, verse 20. We're going to walk through that story. And then, God willing, we'll look at some implications of the resurrection of Christ. In other words, what is God intending to communicate through the resurrection of Christ? So we're going to start with a story. We're going to read these, these 42 verses together. And my hope is that we can read it slowly, that we can read it prayerfully, that we can read it thoughtfully with worship in our hearts. That's the goal. You know, we don't sing to the Lord and, and, and we understand that to be worship to our God. We don't pause worship and then come to his word. No, this is, this is worship. So I'm, I want to ask you to do that as we take God's word and we read it. And I'm going to make a few comments here and there as we read through this passage. Lean in. Lean in with me and see Christ. See who he is, see what he's like, see what he's done. And let's worship Christ together through his word. It might be a familiar story, but I want, I want to encourage you here, if you're in Christ, to enjoy it. Enjoy the story of Christ and what he's done. Matthew 27, and we'll just read the first verse, verse 45. Our first verse in our passage, verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Now, I want you to try to imagine that for a minute. This says from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. That's from 12 noon to 3 p.m. Three hours in the middle of the day. And it says here, and there was darkness over the land. At this point, Jesus has already been crucified. Jesus has been hanging on that cross since the sixth hour. He's been hanging there 
He's been hanging there for three hours already, and here we come. Excuse me, he's been hanging there since the third hour, and here we come to the sixth hour, to the 12 noon. He's been hanging there for three hours on that cross. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the day, it goes dark. The sun's light stops shining. What were the people thinking? Can you try to imagine that in that moment? People, we know there's bystanders watching him crucified. A lot of bystanders right when he was crucified and still three hours later, a lot of, a lot of bystanders, we know that from the text. But what are they thinking when in the middle of the day there's Christ crucified and in the middle of the day it goes dark? I believe it's the Gospel of Luke that says the sun's light failed. The sun's light failed. Or if you saw Christ being crucified that day and you saw it, and you didn't hang around for three hours and you went home and all of a sudden you're at home and it's lunchtime and it goes dark in the land. What are these people thinking? I believe God's getting their attention, our attention. That you could have been there that day and you could have seen Jesus crucified on the cross and you might have made the mistake of thinking this is a death just like any other death. This is one of the many crucifixions that we've seen throughout our lifetime. It's just a normal death, but it goes dark in the middle of the day to scream the reality, this is different. There's something different about this death. Isaac Watts in the 1700s, he wrote a hymn. It says, well might the sun, S-U-N, well might the sun in darkness hide. And shut his glories in while Christ the mighty maker died for man the creature's sin. He gives this picture of the sun hiding his glories in while the mighty maker is dying on the cross in the place of wicked sinners like us. And the sun says, I won't shine on that. Verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want you to think about that. It says, about the ninth hour. Remember, it was dark. He's hanging on the cross for three hours. It goes dark for three hours. And at the ninth hour, this is at the end of Jesus' suffering on that cross. He's been hanging there in torture and agony, bleeding out for six hours. And all of a sudden, the light's cut back on. The lights cut back on as if the sun is going to shine down and highlight these final moments. These final moments where he's hanging on the cross before he dies and what he says, it's like the sun just wants to highlight one last thing. It says about the ninth hour, we got a spotlight on the final scene. And it says in a loud voice, he screams. Can you imagine it going out loud? All the bystanders hear it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And I believe this would have blown some, some of the minds of some of the Jews there that day. We know many of them didn't understand it as they go on to say, maybe he's calling for Elijah. But surely there were some that understood that Psalm 22 starts with those words. They hear the loud cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Psalm 22, verse 1, that's how it begins. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you imagine in that moment, at the very end of Jesus' suffering, your attention gets drawn to Psalm 22. And you go back and read that psalm, or maybe if you're there that day, maybe you know that psalm really well. And you start thinking through the content of Psalm 22. And you realize that it says things like this. It's prophecies of that Messiah that was to come. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. And it goes on. Can you imagine the, the Jew that understood this psalm? And they hear, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there it is. The one that they talked about. They're piercing his hands and his feet. They're casting lots for his clothing over here. I see prophecy fulfilled with my own eyes. A side note, not to get ahead, but that psalm goes on to speak about this Christ crucified, pierced hands and feet being resurrected. The psalm goes on to say, but you, O oh Lord, do not be far off. O oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And listen to the words. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And Jesus sure did. Now this verse back in Matthew 27, verse 46, it's a reminder to us of exactly what Jesus was doing on that cross. I want you to think about this. He's hanging on the cross at his, his final moments and he does not say, my disciples, my disciples, why have you forsaken me? Although they did. He didn't say to the Jewish people, my people, my people, why have you forsaken me? Although they certainly did. But he knows, and we need to know this, that what he's facing on that cross, what you couldn't see with your eyes, is that he's coming under the wrath of God, the punishment of God for our sins. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We need to understand that in that moment, the cross is, is brutal and bloody and nasty. If you would have been there, you would have thrown up. As horrible as the cross was, it's meant to show us something and remind us that what Jesus has taken at that cross is different than the thief beside him or the other thief beside, on the other side of him. But what he's taken at that cross is punishment from God. And it's the punishment that we were supposed to take.
He was taking the bullet of God's wrath in our place. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's an old hymn, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. And I, and I wonder if you understand this line from the hymn. It says, tell me, ye who hear him groaning, was there ever grief like his? Friends, through fear his cause disowning, foes insulting his distress. Many hands were raised to wound him. None would interpose to save. But listen, but the deepest stroke that pierced him was a stroke that justice gave. There's a lot of wounds that day and a lot of hands raised to wound him that day. But you do understand that the, the deepest stroke that pierced him came from the hand of the just judge of the universe. The judgment for our sin poured out on him. So that throughout all of eternity, God would be just judge. He punished all sin. And the justifier of those who have faith in this Messiah who died. Verse 47. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. You see, they didn't get it. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. And he yielded up his spirit. So there Jesus is dead. Dead, dead, dead. And the last thing is something that says with a loud voice, he says something right at the very end. And the Gospel of John tells us what he said. He screamed out with his final breath, breath it is finished. A work has been completed. He's not just a martyr, but he's finishing a mission. He's not just a martyr, but he's completing a mission in his death. It's finished. A debt has been paid in his death. Our debt has been paid in full. The wages of sin is death. We deserve to go to hell forever. We earn the wrath of God with our sin. Jesus comes and he fully pays that debt. He drank the cup of God's wrath down until there was nothing left to drink. It is finished. Debt paid in full. Verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were open, and, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him 
keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Now what we just read in that portion is there was, there was a lot of external miracles all around the death of Jesus Christ. A lot of miracles to see all around the death of Jesus Christ. We read one earlier. He's hanging on the cross and half of his time hanging on the cross for six hours is in the dark in the middle of the day. It's a miracle. And then what we just read here is that when he dies, the temple curtain, it says, is torn in two from top to bottom. You got this curtain in the temple of God there in Jerusalem and the curtain blocks the way into the holy of holies to the most holy place no one goes in there lest you die you don't come into the presence of God lest you die you're a sinner and once a year a priest would go in there fearing for his life to offer up blood for the sins of the people and here Christ dies and it says that veil that temple curtain, that thick temple curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. The way into the presence of God has been made through Jesus Christ. Sinners can go to God in prayer with Him for all of eternity. How can sinners be in the presence of God? Because Jesus has died. He's taken away the sin. He's taken away the wrath. Now we can come safely before Him as Father. The veil's been torn. And it says torn from top to bottom, fully torn, not bottom to top, but top to bottom as if God himself grabbed it from the top and ripped it. And people that have never seen the Holy of Holies before saw it. And of course, it's a picture of entering into the presence of God. More miracles, not only darkness, not only the temple curtain torn. But a rock-splitting earthquake happens as Christ dies and gives up His Spirit. We just read it right here. Verse 51, it says, The earth shook and rocks were split. Imagine that centurion in that moment. The one who hangs on the cross and it goes dark. The lights come back on. He screams my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is finished. He dies. Earthquake. Rock splitting earthquake in the moment. It's a wake up call. Something's unique about this death. This is like no other crucifixion that's ever happened before. Something's happening behind the scenes here. And then we read after that that the tombs, verse 52, the tombs were also open. And I think a lot of people think that the tombs were open because of the earthquake, but I don't think so. Tombs cave in at earthquakes. Can you imagine? All of a sudden, these, these miracles that it goes dark, the temple curtain's torn, massive rock-splitting earthquake happens in that moment, he's got everybody's attention, and you look up and stones are rolled away from these tombs in Jerusalem. He opens the tombs in that moment. 
It's like a little, it's like a little teaser of what's to come. Think about that. Here's Jesus. He's just died for sinners. They're about to stuff him into a tomb. And right as he dies and right as he's about to be stuffed into a tomb, God rolls tombs back. Like a little teaser telling you something's coming. Something's coming. And all of this made a pagan centurion and all his buddies, it says here with him, it made them stand awestruck and say, man, that was the son, the son of God. Now He was wrong. Because it's not that he was the son of God. He's going to find out in a couple days he is the son of God. But man, it got his attention. Now, we also get a little, again, not to get ahead of ourselves, but we get a little foreshadowing here of the power of Jesus' resurrection. Look, look again one more time at verse 52. The tombs also were open, and then look at this. It kind of fast forwards to the resurrection for a second, just lets us in on some, a little bit of how powerful this is. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, think about that. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after His resurrection, as if the power of Jesus' resurrection carried more people out of the tombs with Him, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. You think He had Jerusalem's attention? Something was unique about this death and about this man, Christ Jesus, our Savior. Verse 55. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to Him. Among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening... There came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own new tomb which he had cut out in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. So there he is. Eyewitnesses all around seen this death. They've seen everything that's happened. The women looking on. Joseph asked for the body. They take the body down, the body of Christ. And they put him in a tomb. And there he is, buried. He's really dead. Dead, dead, dead. Buried in the tomb. Verse 62. And right here, it's interesting. We're going to get a little insight into the enemies of Jesus deliberating as Jesus is buried in that tomb. The enemies of Jesus deliberating as 
He's buried in that tomb. Look at it, verse 62. The next day, that is the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter... That ought to tick you off. We remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. <laughs> so they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting the guard. They sealed the stone and they set the guard. Now again, this is the enemies of Jesus, right? We get a little insight into what they're saying. They, they just called your Savior an imposter. And they said, you know what we need to do? We, we need to make sure we, that those disciples don't go steal Jesus' dead body because He's dead in there. They don't go steal the body and then go around and tell everybody that He rose from the dead. Then they said, because if they, if they do that, the last fraud will be worse than the, than the last, than this other fraud. In other words, what Jesus has done is a fraud. He's an imposter. These are enemies, enemies of the cross. Now, this is a great example, and I want you to understand this. It's a great example of God, like a puppet, <laughs> like working with a puppet, using his enemies to do his purpose. This is God using his enemies to accomplish all of his purposes. So let me try to explain that. If you think about the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection is a major proof of the truths of Christianity. Okay? Jesus' resur resurrection is a major proof of the truths of Christianity. We see this in Acts 17, 31, where we're told that, that there's going to be a judgment by Jesus Christ, and it says he's given, this is Acts 17, 31, he's given proof of this to all by raising him from the dead. This man rose from the dead, and this is, a, this is major proof of the truth of Christianity. People in the book of Acts, they were awakened to who God is. They were awakened, awakened to Jesus as the Messiah through this proof of an empty tomb and, and a Jesus who showed himself to people after he had died to eyewitness accounts. And even today, anybody unbelieving has got to deal with the resurrection of Christ and those eyewitnesses that saw him. It's a major proof of the truths of Christianity. Now, one objection that the enemies of the cross could bring is what? He didn't really rise. He didn't really rise. His disciples came in, stole the body, and told everybody that he rose from the dead. Well, God uses the enemies of Jesus to completely squash that objection. 
Imagine them trying to get by with that. And they will in a minute, by the way. Imagine them trying to get by, try to get by with that. Um, uh, the disciples came and they stole the body. You mean those disciples overpowered this, these soldiers? That's what you're telling me? And they say, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, but we were asleep. To which you say, how'd you know they stole it then? If, if you were asleep. And he completely obliterates this argument by setting the seal, setting the, uh, setting the seal, setting the guard. They're not able to steal the body. And this objection to the resurrected Jesus is done away with. I love how it says it here in verse 64. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure. Secure the tomb. Secure it. Until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he is risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Listen, Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. They did the best they could. They did the best they could. Satan did the best he could. Just don't let him rise. Don't let him come out of that tomb. They couldn't stop him. Chapter 28, verse 1 through 7. Now this is a focus on the empty tomb. We'll come to the appearances of Jesus resurrected later, but chapter 28, verse 1 through 7, that we're going to read it, is a focus on the empty tomb. Look at it, verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath... Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. This is a focus on the empty tomb. The stone is not rolled back to let Jesus out. The stone is rolled back to let people in to see no one's in there. His appearance, the angel, was like lightning. And his clothing, white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For he is risen. As he said, come. See the place where he lay. This is about the empty tomb. Stone rolled back by the angel. Why? Come. Look at this. Come see where he was laid. You know where he was laid. You're all witnesses to it. Come see where he was laid. And they notice that the tomb is empty. He's not there. Now, how important is the empty tomb? And I want to encourage you. It is massively important. Massively important. Before you even get to the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, the empty tomb is massively important. And one of the ways you know that is look at the messenger that was sent to, to highlight the, the, the implications of the empty tomb. You know, the greater the messenger, the greater the message, right? What kind of messenger was sent 
to tell of the empty tomb. It says here an angel. And you're going to have to get your, you know, any kind of false ideas you got about angels, get it out of your head. We're talking about angels like Old Testament angels that slaughtered 100,000 soldiers in one swipe. And angels there. It says here is a messenger. And it says that this is, this is an earth-shaking angel. I don't, in case you missed it, look at verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake. Why? For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came. This is an earth-shaking angel as a messenger to point at an empty tomb. The empty tomb is important. What else do we see about this messenger? It says here that his face is like lightning and that his clothing is as bright as snow. I read that and I thought about the recent ice storm that we had and we went out and everything's snow and ice everywhere. And we go out in the middle of the day and it's blinding. You're not used to the sun reflecting off the brightness of that, of that, of that colors and that snow. You're not used to that. It's blinding. This angel's face is like lightning. It's clothing. It's blinding these people. How powerful was this angel? This messenger. Look at verse 4. Best, best description right here of the angel. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. They didn't even run. Just drop. Fetal position. Maybe he'll think we're dead. Soldiers. And so God sends this messenger to tell of an empty tomb. Why, why is it so? Why is the empty tomb so powerful? Who did God send? To do something so simple. I know you're sick in Jesus who was crucified. He's risen. Look. Roll back the stone. Look at the place where he laid. He's not there. Empty tomb. It's massively important. I want you to think about why. Again, think about the enemies of the cross. All they had to do to squat. They hated Christ. They hated his followers. They loved their supremacy. And all they had to do to squash Christianity in its infancy is to just present a body. Just guard the body for three days. That's all you got to do. Guard the body. And then when they start talking about he rose, he rose, he rose, and thousands start coming to Christ and bowing down to him as Lord, guess what you got to do? Just take the body and show it to them. Liars. But they couldn't do it. Why? The tomb was empty. There's no body there. Christ is risen. Now, as we continue reading, we get a record of a couple of the post. There was a lot of post-resurrection appearances where not only is the tomb empty, but Jesus, after he is suffered under the wrath of God for our sins and clearly died, dead, dead, buried, he shows himself to eyewitnesses. And we get two of those here. Look at verse 7 again. Verse 7 says, Then go, this angel talking to the ladies, Then go quickly, tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. 
See? I'm sure you're still looking at the tomb. I've told you. You will see him. He tells these ladies, go tell the disciples that. You're going to get to see him after he's dead. Not just an empty tomb, but you're going to see the risen Christ. And then we see two of those post-resurrection appearances. The first one is verse 8 through 10. Let's read it. So they, the women, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. Man, the, the emotions... Describing the emotions after Christ has died and risen is amazing. Y'all just mark every time you hear emotions described. They're with fear and with great joy. They ran and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up. Can you imagine that moment? And they came up and they took hold of his feet. And they worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there, again, here it is. They will see me. They will see me. Can you imagine them worshipping the Savior in that moment? When I used to live in Starville, I remember going to uh, speak with, a, with an imam, me and a group of people speaking with an imam, which is a leader of a Muslim mosque, and talking about Jesus, God in flesh. And one of his kickbacks on me was, show me one place in the Bible where it says they worship Jesus. I don't know why he had that confidence, because it's in the Bible. And this is one of the places, I'm about to read another one, but this is one of the places they worshiped him. This is God in the flesh. They already knew it, man. They know it now. The resurrected one. This is the God man. The man who's fully, truly God and truly man. He's died for sinners. And because he's God, his death is so valuable that it pays for the sin of the world. Second eyewitness post-resurrection appearance is verse 16 and 17, I mean, he kept telling them, go to Galilee, go to Galilee, look at it, verse 16. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, what did they do? They worshipped. They worshipped him. But some doubted. They worshipped him. So now they're in Galilee. This is like, it's likely that this was not just the disciples here. But more than likely, this is that place where when you read the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 15, and he speaks about 500 eyewitnesses that saw Jesus at one time. In one event, they saw the resurrected Jesus. And more than likely, this is it. And so you imagine that argument in 1 Corinthians. He's, he's telling the Corinthian church, who's not in Jerusalem, not in Syria, he's telling them Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, 1 Corinthians 15. He was buried. He really died. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And he's, and he's drawn them in. You've got to believe this. He was seen by Cephas. And then he was seen, it says, by the twelve. And then it says this, 
And he was seen by over 500 brethren at one time. And then he says in 1 Corinthians 15, you know, most of them are still alive. Some of them fall asleep, but most of them are still alive. What's he saying? Go ask them. Can you imagine being in Corinth and doubting your Savior? Take your little trip across the Mediterranean and go to those people that saw him and you tell me all 500 of them are lying to you. He's risen from the dead. Eyewitnesses saw him. Trust the risen Christ. Trust him. Now, go back to verse 11. Let's read the passage we skipped. Verse 11 through 15. Look at it. Again, again, you get a deliberation with the enemies of Christ. Look at it. Verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city. So they got out of that fetal position. The angel muscle went away. They go into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. They bribed them, give the money, so, money to the soldiers, and said, tell people, tell them this, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole them away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy them and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money, and did as they were directed. And this story, this false lying story, has been spread among the Jews to this day. So they come up with this story we talked about just a moment ago. Yeah, yeah, go tell them that the disciples slipped in and stole the body away. Well, guess what? That lie did not work. Christianity began to spread throughout Jerusalem. Thousands of people being saved in Jerusalem, the place where he died, and out into the nations. It spreads everywhere. This law didn't work. A few reasons this law didn't work. One, it's just illogical. Again, soldiers overpowered by these disciples. Oh, we were asleep. Well, then how'd you know? It's just illogical. Second, the post-resurrection appearances were so convincing. Hey, the disciples stole his body away. Really? Because 500 people said they saw him. He's not in the tomb, and they saw him walking on earth again after he was killed by crucifixion. Something's up. The lie didn't work. A third reason it didn't work. All the miraculous signs that were surrounding Jesus' death. Can you imagine that? Hey, they stole the body. Man, come on. Like, he's on the cross. It goes dark. The, the temple curtain's torn in two from top to bottom. It's ripped apart. People are coming out of tombs. And their dead people are talking to people in Jerusalem. Coming out of tombs. An earthquake, a rock-splitting earthquake happens. And you're telling me they just stole the body? And then lastly, I think all, if you read through the book of Acts, you got explanation after explanation after explanation of Old Testament prophecies that this Jesus is the Christ who would die for sinners and rise from the dead. And they explain it and they explain it and they preach it from the Old Testament again and again. This lie didn't work. Thousands saved. 
And here we sit worshiping the risen Christ today. Last little passage here, verse 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Can you imagine him saying that? Looking at these, you know, some of them just fishermen from fishermen, uh, Jewish fishermen here from little small towns. And he looks at them and he says, this is the one they walked with for three years that they've seen crucified, that they are looking at him risen from the dead. And he says, all authority, all of it in heaven and on earth is mine. It's been given to me. Now, somebody might ask the question, wait a minute, I thought Jesus, son of God, always had all authority in heaven and on earth. Listen to me as the son of God. As one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as the second person of the Trinity, the one true God creator, he has all authority in heaven and on earth. But what he's making known to us now is that God who took on human flesh as a man, as a human, one of your own stock with human flesh has all authority now in heaven and on earth. And then Jesus dishes out this massive charge and this massive promise. And when you read them, you should think, how could a man say such a thing? Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's a massive charge. Looking at these little Jewish boys. Go make disciples of all the nations. All the world is mine. Go make disciples of them. Turn them into my disciples. Baptize them. Bring them in. Massive charge. How could he say such a thing? Verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And here's the massive promise. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. How could he say that? How could he look at all these people and say... I'm with you. Even to the end of the age, I'm with you. And the reason he can say it is because he's not just the one who was once resurrected past tense. Jesus is the resurrected one right now. Even now. And the resurrected one can say, all nations are mine. Go tell them. Go tell them. And he can say, I'll be with you. To the very ends of the age. Now let me try to quickly mention a few implications. What's you know we we're we're glorying in this story. What's God communicating to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ? What's He communicating to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And I'll hit these quickly, and we'll call out to the Lord in prayer. One. He's communicating that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Listen to me, please. It's been promised literally since Genesis chapter 3. Since sin first entered the world, it's been promised that there would be this one that would come that would be, he's called Messiah. He would be a savior. He would be a crusher of Satan's head. It's been promised. Go start in Genesis, read it all the way through, and it tells you about the promised Messiah. And it says things like this that can seem contradictory. 
It says that that one who is Messiah will die for sinners. And yet he'll be king forever. How could he be both? Only in the resurrection. You go read Hebrews 11, verse 17 through 19. You got Abraham. He does the same thing. Abraham says, um, well, I need to, he, God told me to kill, to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice, so he's got to die. But God also promised that he would be my seed and he would continue it on. And you go read that passage and it says that he concluded that, oh, God's going to raise him from the dead. And it's the same thing with our Messiah. We read the Old Testament and we read that he's going to be king forever. He's going to rule and reign on his throne forever. And yet he's going to die. What's the conclusion? He's going to rise. This is the Messiah. The promised one. Number two. The resurrection is God communicating to us that God should be believed. He should be believed. If I say it another way, the resurrection is a compelling argument for faith in God. It's a compelling argument for faith in God. If I say it another way, the resurrection of Jesus is the basis for Christian faith. It's the ground, it's the basis for Christian faith. You need to understand that. Listen, faith is not just a good feeling that it's all going to be all right. That's Disney's version, okay? Faith does not just mean it's all going to be okay. I just got a good feeling about it. No, no. Faith biblically has a basis. It has a ground. So the way you have faith is not by, I feel like it's going to be okay. No, no. You have faith by getting your eyes on the ground. Get your eyes on the basis and trust. What's the basis? Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. The word of Christ is the basis. Christ is the basis. Get your eyes there. And especially the resurrection of Christ is the basis for your faith, the ground of your faith. Acts 17, 31, he's given proof to all by raising him from the dead. So this affects... The way you think about salvation, I would send you to John 20, verse 30 and 31. That verse tells you why John's gospel was written. John 20, verse 30 and 31, it says, Jesus did a lot of other signs that are not written in this book, but these are written in the book. Why? It says that you might believe. It's for your faith in these signs. What are these signs? Everything Jesus did, and especially he rose from the dead. Not like Lazarus to die again, but risen from the dead and lives forevermore. Do you believe him or no? Read John's gospel. Trust the risen Savior. It also affects what you preach. If you know that the resurrection of Jesus is a ground and a basis for the faith, then you will preach a resurrected Jesus. I would challenge you, go read the book of Acts and you'll see it in Acts chapter 1. They gave witness to the resurrection of Jesus. Acts chapter 2, they gave witness to the resurrection of Jesus. Acts chapter 3, they gave witness to the resurrection of Jesus. And you can keep going through the book of Acts. They preached a resurrected Christ to you. Do you see it as a ground for faith? And you're trying to get people's eyes on it. Christ crucified and Christ risen. The resurrection of Jesus is not just the period at the end of the sentence. 
that Christ died. It's the basis of faith. Number three, the resurrection of Jesus is God's communication that God has accepted the sacrifice. He did. Think about this for just a minute. Romans 1.4. Romans chapter 1 verse 4. It says that Jesus is declared to be the Son of God. How? How? Go read the passage. It says, He's declared to be the Son of God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He claimed to be the Son of God. How do we know? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Go read 1 Corinthians 15 where it says, If Jesus didn't rise, your faith is vain. If Jesus didn't rise, you're still in your sin. If Jesus didn't rise, that Christian that you love, that died, is perishing in hell. If Jesus didn't rise. But He did rise. And His resurrection is the amen of Jesus saying, It is finished. Jesus says, It is finished at the cross. And at the resurrection, the Father says, It's finished indeed. He's accepted the sacrifice. Number four, the resurrection of Jesus is God's communication that Jesus is alive. Now, he's, He is alive. Now, I know that seems obvious. It seems obvious, but many, many people miss this. And we say crazy stuff like, you know, back when Jesus was alive. What? What do you mean back when Jesus was alive? That's the point. He rose and what? He didn't die again like Lazarus. He's alive. Now. And the resurrection is screaming that to us that Christ Jesus is alive. I can't preach the resurrection of Christ without reading this verse. Forgive me if you've heard it. Acts 25 verse 19. If I can set the scene real quick. Festus a governing authority, has got Paul in prison. Festus has Paul in prison. And Festus is bringing Paul to, the, to a trial before King Agrippa. Well, Festus is telling King Agrippa about this man, Paul. Hey, Paul's going to stand before your judgment. Uh, King Agrippa, let me tell you about Paul. And listen to what Festus says about Paul. Verse 19. They had certain points of dispute. Some about Paul and the Jews. They had certain points of dispute with Paul about their own religion, Judaism, and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. That's the way Festus thought about Paul's life. What's the, what's the fuss? What's the fuss all about? Well, this man, Jesus, who's dead, crucified by Pontius Pilate, he's dead, dead, dead. Paul keeps saying he's alive. That man was a preacher of a risen, living Christ. And this affects our life tremendously. It affects the way you think about salvation. Romans 10, 9 says, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, not He was Lord, but He is Lord right now. And believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead. You'll be saved. 
See, that resurrection connected to he, he is Lord. He's raised from the dead. I believe it in my heart. I confess with my, with my mouth. He is Lord right now. Nobody is saved by just believing intellectually some facts that happened in the past. You're saved by faith and repentance toward a living Savior right now. Is your trust in Him? He's alive. Is your trust in Him or not? And this also affects your life. I just read this morning. I went back and read this morning. In one of the gospel accounts, you can read the first Lord's Day gathering. Here we are a couple thousand years later, meeting on the Lord's Day. First Lord's Day gathering. There says the disciples are huddled up together. They're actually afraid. They got the doors shut and locked. And Jesus is risen. It says he comes and stands among them. He's standing in their midst. You know what it says about the disciples? They were glad to see him. <laughs> they were just glad to see their Savior. If you believe he's alive and you're searching God's word and you don't see him with your eyes yet, but you see him through the eyes of faith and you're getting to know your Savior. This changes everything. Your faith is not in a dead Savior that did something back then. Your faith is in a living Savior who has died, who has risen, and he's ruling, reigning right now, pouring out the Holy Spirit, building his church like he promised he would do, and he's coming again one day. Last implication. Number five. The resurrection, in the resurrection of Jesus, God's communicating to us that there will be a future resurrection. Another resurrection is coming. Colossians 1.18, Jesus is called the firstborn from the dead. He's the firstborn from the dead. And you say, what about those other people that were risen from the dead before Jesus? They rose to die again. It's not resurrection. He's the first one to rise as the firstborn of that new humanity that's going to be resurrected. Romans 8 speaks about the resurrection of our bodies. It's coming at the end. Jesus is going to descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ are going to rise. And we who are alive and remain are going to be caught up together to meet them, meet the Lord in the air, and thus we'll always be with the Lord. A resurrection's coming. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. That's going to happen. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life. And some to shame and everlasting contempt. A resurrection coming. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, and his resurrection reminds us to think about our eternity. Well, I follow in with him in that final resurrection as those who rise to everlasting life. Or will I be one of those that rise, having ignored the resurrection, ignored the death of Christ, and I'll rise to shame and everlasting contempt? I want to encourage you to think about that. And as you do, think about Jesus resurrected. Let's pray.
Father, thank you so much for these words again and this testimony and our Savior. Lord, we love you. We lift up your name as holy. There's none like you and there's none other that we want to follow. God, all the temptations of this world, they, they fade. They just fade, God, into meaninglessness. Compared to being near to you and knowing you. God, I pray that you would help us to live life before a resurrected Savior. To preach a resurrected Savior. And Lord, we look forward to the day you return. In Jesus' name, amen.